You're listening to the Revolution Church Podcast. To learn more, including our gathering times in Crossville, Tennessee, visit us at CrossvilleRevolution.com. We are in, I believe, the 16th or 17th week of our series on the book of Acts, and we're going to do something that I have not done uh, in this series so far. We're going to skip way ahead for one week. We'll be right back where we were. Uh, next week, but this week we're going to skip ahead to Acts chapter 16 and take a look at the story of the Philippian jailer. I felt led about a month ago to really take a look at this passage of scripture, and I really hope that it ministers to you today. We got a lot to cover today, pretty uh, heavy theologically today, and then at the end we're going to get something that is super applicational. Uh, we're going to look at verses 25 through 34 in Acts chapter 16. Um, But because we haven't preached up to this point and we haven't looked at the previous scriptures in Acts 16, allow me to give you some context of really what is taking place in Acts 16, 25 through 34. If you look at the first few verses of Acts chapter 16, you see that Acts 16 is focused on the ministry of Paul. Now, we've kind of told you guys over and over that the first uh, half of the book of Acts is focused on the ministry of Peter. The second half of the book of Acts is focused on the ministry of Paul. And so far we've been focused on Peter, but in Acts 16 it's completely focused on Paul. Paul is going to Asia in order to try to spread the gospel somewhere where the gospel has never been spread before. First few verses of Acts 16, Paul comes in contact with with a rich lady named Lydia who gets saved. Then he comes in contact with a slave girl, and I love that because the socioeconomic spectrum is wide open in the church. Amen. There's rich people, there's poor people, but he comes in contact with a slave girl who has what the Bible calls a spirit of divination. It's interesting translated. It's actually a spirit of python that is on this girl. And what this demonic spirit that she is possessed with allows her to do is talk with dead people, and be a psychic and be able to tell the future. Well, as you can imagine, her owners, the owners of this slave girl, have made lots of money off of her because lots of people were looking to talk to grandma or were looking to tell the future. And yes, you should stay away from those things because they are absolutely demonic. If you read your horoscope every day, stop, okay? Uh, If you're going to somebody to try to talk to your dead grandma, that is the spirit of divination. It's very serious. One of the few demons in Scripture that is called out by name several times. Spirit of Python, right? Well, this girl comes in contact with Paul and Silas, and what do you think happens? She has a radical experience with the Holy Spirit, she's delivered from this demonic possession, and she gets saved. Well, because she's delivered from this spirit of divination, she can no longer uh, tell the future, and she can no longer talk to dead people. And so as a result of that, her owners get furious. Her owners are like, we can't make any money off her anymore. And her owners appear, if you read the scripture, the first you know, 24 verses, they appear to be pretty influential because they get a crowd of people together and they grab Paul and Silas and they essentially beat them. And then after they're done beating them, they throw them into prison. And that's where we pick up our story in verse 25. Y'all with me? Say, I am. After they had been severely flogged, it's Paul and Silas, They were thrown into prison. And the jailer, everybody say jailer, jailer, okay? This guy is essentially the warden 
of the prison, so to speak. He's over the prison, all right? The jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. They were going to come back the next day and figure out what they were going to do with these guys. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell. Where it says inner cell, think solitary confinement by today's standards. They must have told the jailer, it's very important that you do not allow these guys to to escape. They may have even threatened his life because the jailer immediately puts them in what's known as, when it says uh, the inner cell, the deepest, darkest, dungeon-like part of the prison that would be the most difficult to escape. He put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. So not only are they in a cell, their feet are fastened in stocks as well. They're chained up, basically. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Now, I just want to stop for a minute, and I want you to think about this. If you had been sharing the gospel and seeing the Holy Spirit set people free as a result of your ministry of demonic possession, And as a result of your ministry, simply sharing the gospel, allowing people to get saved through the power of the Holy Spirit and the strength of the gospel, and you got thrown into prison after you were beaten, would you be doing what Paul and Silas are doing? Notice they weren't proclaiming their innocence to anyone. They weren't cursing God for their circumstances. This is a fulfillment of the book of James that says we should have joy in the middle of afflictions and persecutions that we face because they essentially have a worship and prayer service in the middle of all of this. And I just love that. I'd like to think that's what I do, but I'm not too sure. Uh, Verse 26, it continues, Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. If you were a warden of a prison back then, a Philippian jailer or a jailer in any other part of the world, and your prisoners escaped, then what awaited you was not a quick death, but an excruciating death. He knew that because those doors were open, if the prisoners weren't in there, he was going to face torture and face a horrible death, and so he gets suicidal. He says, man, I don't want to do that. I'm just going to end it right now. But Watch what happens. Most of y'all know the story. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, and listen to what it says. We are all here. We are all here. Not only were Paul and Silas still in the jail after the doors were open and they were freed from their chains, But don't miss this, every other prisoner stayed as well. Now, it doesn't give us any context. This is speculation. I don't know how. I don't know if all the prisoners stayed in their own cell. I don't know if they were all in Paul and Silas' cell and somehow got involved in this worship and prayer service. But for some reason, everyone stayed instead of fleeing. Verse 29, the jailer called for lights, rushed in. And fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then, he, he, he then brought them out and asked, listen to the question, great question. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And then listen to the answer, incredible answer. Uh, we're going to spend some time on it today. They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And then I'll explain this B part of their answer, you and your whole household. Let's stop right there for a minute. 
for all intents and purposes, the Philippian jailer has had what we would call a near-death experience. As I've explained, he knows what's awaiting him if his prisoners escape. But he hears Paul cry out, all the prisoners are still here. And what washed over him had to be a sense of a second chance or a sense of relief, so to speak. And because of this relief that he feels, his heart is open, his ears are open to the gospel, and God uses this moment to allow Paul to lead him to Christ. In the question, sirs, what must I do to be saved? There's some interesting words that are used here. Uh, The word sirs is a Greek word, kyrios, K-Y-R-I-O-S. And it is a title of respect, yes, but also uh, listen to how else it was used. It was also used in reference to God in the Greek translation of the Old Testament and used as a common title for Jesus Christ that indicates his absolute lordship. So we don't know, again, this is speculation, but for some reason he knows When he asks this question and starts out with sirs, there's a direct connection to the one true God of the Old Testament and to Christ. Maybe Paul and Silas shared the gospel with him at some point up to this point. Maybe he heard their singing and recognized that every single one of their songs had to do with the one true God of the Old Testament, had to do with, it was all about Jesus Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The word saved here is the word sozo, S-O-Z-O. Some of y'all know this word. What can I do to go to heaven, essentially? Many biblical scholars agree that this is a great translation. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? There's nothing wrong with that translation. But to be a little more detailed and probably what the question more accurately sounded like, remember, this is a pagan man Uh, He's a Greek. He doesn't know God. Uh, Nowhere does it tell us he was a Jew, most likely a Greek. He probably said something like this instead of, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The question probably sounded like this. How can I be saved from having offended two powerful magicians? If you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about magicians and the importance in Greek culture of magicians. Now, this is a great question, And the answer that is given to these two is an incredible answer. And we'll talk about how really the answer talks about how the only thing that can save us is faith in Christ. But I want you to recognize and track with me for about the next five minutes because I want to make sure I thoroughly explain this. The answer that is given is really a surface answer if we just read that answer. And it's not quite a complete answer as to how this man can come to a saving knowledge of Christ. Uh, Let me read a quote to you by uh, Chuck Swindoll that may give some clarity on the statement that I just made. Chuck Swindoll says about this answer, Paul and Silas gave him a concise answer, but not sufficient for someone utterly lacking in knowledge of God or his son, or the concepts of sin, heaven, hell, and atonement, but clear enough to let him know that he needed to hear about Jesus Christ. In other words, 
most scholars agree, most theologians agree, that their answer was a foretaste to the conversation that, they would, that Paul and Silas would have with the Philippian jailer and his family later, where they would explain some very basic doctrines to them so that they could have a clarity of the gospel and then come to a saving faith of Christ. Does that make sense to everybody? Say amen. In other words, what we're saying is, if you read through Scripture, yes, it is about believing in Jesus, and we're going to explain that here in a minute. I don't want to confuse you, because I'm not trying to say something anti-scriptural. Okay? You know where we stand on this. But what you believe about certain things that the Bible talks about is absolutely foundational to whether or not you can be saved. Now, can someone get saved in 30 seconds in an elevator when you look at them and say, believe in the Lord Jesus, you can be saved? Yeah, God can do whatever he wants. But clearly in Scripture, you have to have some kind of working knowledge of what you believe about Jesus is of utmost importance. What you believe about heaven and hell, utmost importance. Let me give you an example that will clarify this. There are many different denominations that the world looks at and says these are Christian Orthodox denominations, but they're not. For instance, if you talk to a Jehovah Witness and you say, do you believe in Jesus? They'll look at you and say, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. And we don't have time to get into the specifics of this. One day maybe we'll be able to. But if you really sat down and talked with them about what they believe about Jesus, who he is, it's completely antithetical to what the Bible says about Jesus. What they believe about heaven, what they believe about hell, completely wrong. What they believe about creation, what they believe about God the Father, completely wrong. So while, yeah, we say we believe in Jesus, they're completely lost because they have no clue who Jesus really is. Does that make sense to everybody? Say amen. Mormons, same thing. Go to a Mormon. Love Mormons. Love Jehovah Witness. Talk to them all the time. The Mormons here in Crossville love me. They come and seek me out at my house because I'll sit down and talk to them for like two hours and have really hard questions and conversation. We had one come to our house a couple of months ago, and he was like, everybody's told me about Josh. Where's Josh at? I want to talk to Josh. My wife's like, he's not here. He never did come back. But it's all good. I love talking to Mormons and witnessing to them. Okay? We love them, but they're lost. If you look at a Mormon and say, do you believe in Jesus? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I believe in Jesus. But, boy, you read their doctrine. You read their theology, what they believe about basic things that you really have to have an understanding of to be saved is what I'm saying. They're completely, they're not even inside the ballpark of what the Bible says and what Christianity really is. Does that make sense to everybody? Say amen. And so at some point, either previously, most likely after when they go to their house, Paul and Silas, it's pretty agreed upon that they had conversations with them and explained the gospel fully and completely to them. Now, I'll tell you guys this because the Lord has really worked on me in nine years of planting this church and changed my way that I do ministry and my theological views on how people can come to Christ. When we first started the church, we were the kind of church, and there's nothing wrong with this, uh, 
there could be something wrong with it, and I'll explain. But when we first started the church, we were the kind of church that at the end of every service, we would have an altar call like many of you all have experienced. And we would lead a sinner's prayer, and we would have people either fill a card out or raise their hand or do something like that in order to indicate that they put their trust in Christ. Now, what I've found, the reason a lot of preachers do that is for their own ego. And I had a little bit of that because it makes you feel good when you're up here preaching and 30 people raise their hand. But the effectiveness of it was severely lacking in the church. What we noticed was the same people just about raised their hand every single week. People would raise their hand and say, I believe in Jesus, when we would make it that simple, right? And then they would go out and we'd never see them again or they wouldn't, like, weren't really saved by all appearances. Does that make sense? And what we do now is, if you notice, we usually don't even have an altar call at Rev Church. We usually don't even have music at the end. We kind of just like pray out. And, and our prayers now are, we hope that, and really, honestly, we have more people than ever getting saved, I think, uh, but it's sticking now because people are asking questions and conversations are happening outside the service. And when people get baptized, they don't leave the church in a month hooked on crack again. Does that make sense to everybody? Say amen. In other words, we've had some basic conversations about some basic doctrines with them and they know what they are committing to. See, in America... We want everything microwaved, right? When most of the time, faith needs to be in a crock pot. It's just the truth. We want fast food. Give it to me quick and give it to me easy and cheap. But salvation for almost, I'm not saying God can't do that, but almost everyone, it really needs to be a home-cooked meal where you sit around the table you ask questions, and you talk it out. Does that make sense to everybody? Say amen. So I want to be clear on what the Scripture says before we get into the fact of what believe means. Because the word believe here is another Greek word. Three Greek words today. Pat somebody on the back next to you and say, three Greek words. Yeah, boy. We're going to become theologians up in here. Pistueo, I believe is how you pronounce it. P-I-S-T-E-U-O is the Greek word. And here's what it means when they say believe in the Lord Jesus. It means to think to be true, to be persuaded of, to credit, to place confidence in, or, and here's the best definition, to have faith in or upon with respect to a person or a thing. What an incredible question. Probably people here this weekend thinking to themselves, how in the world do I get saved? The answer that's given is incredible. And if I could summarize the answer that is given... In a simple statement, our salvation and whether or not you make it to heaven has everything to do with whether or not you put your faith in Christ through the power of the gospel, and it has nothing to do with your works. Notice that in their answer, it's all about faith in Christ and who He is and what He's done. It has nothing to do with any of this Philippian jailer's works. They don't mention things he has to change. They don't mention things he has to start doing. They simply say it takes faith 
in the Lord Jesus for you to go to heaven. Now, I don't know about y'all, but that's really good news. See, the thing that sets Christianity apart from every other major religion in the world, it's the thing that makes us really weird, is the fact that we believe us going to heaven, us being saved, so to speak, has everything to do with God's grace and nothing to do with our works. Amen, Rev Church? It has everything to do with faith in Christ. If you go to any major religion, if you go to a lot of different Christian denominations and ask the question, sirs, what must I do to be saved? You could get a lot of different answers. Most of the answers will sound like this. Start doing this and stop doing this, and then maybe you'll go to heaven. But in the Christian church, we say, don't start doing or stop doing anything. Some of the things we may teach you to start doing and stop doing are good things, but the main thing that's going to get you to heaven is whether or not you've surrendered everything and put your faith in Christ. That is good news. Some of y'all been told, hey, you got to get saved and you got to get baptized. Man, we just, just had somebody I love think, well, i got to get baptized in order to be saved. No, you don't. Church of Christ is completely wrong on that. It has everything to do with what Jesus has done and nothing to do with what you've done. Some of y'all have been told that you've got to speak in tongues in order to be saved. No, it's not. Baptism, speaking in tongues, they're good things. When you add those on as a prerequisite for whether or not you're going to go to heaven, it's completely demonic and it's completely false. In fact, if we read through Scripture, we find that there's a lot of Scripture that clarifies this. You know, I was thinking about this this week and been preparing for this sermon for several weeks. Um, And I haven't told one of these in a long time, and it's because I've been saving them up. Do you all know what that is for Father's Day? Dad jokes, you know. Uh, Let me tell you some of the dad jokes that I've been saving up because I love them. My daughter hates them. Like, I need to start, like, an Instagram page where I just film her reactions to my dad jokes because I know if she doesn't laugh, they're good. In fact, you know, I asked her, how can I stop this addiction I have? And she said, whatever means necessary. <laughs> and, of course, I had to say back to her, no, it doesn't, you know. Whoosh, right over y'all's heads, didn't it? Like, whatever means necessary, no, it doesn't. You get it? Whatever it doesn't mean, it's too early, I know. Or that wasn't a good one. Let me tell you the first one. Don't ever donate money to someone who's running a marathon because they just take your money and run. Amen? Did you guys hear about the guy who evaporated? He'll be missed. My wife says, I only have two faults. I don't listen and something else. Can't remember. If we're serious about saving the planet, we should stop printing calendars. Because they're the reason our days are numbered. Amen, y'all. Like, no snowflakes in here, right? Okay, y'all are good. It's Crossville. <laughs> Last two. You know, I got a buddy who joined a dating site for arsonist, and he's been getting a lot of matches. <laughs> you know, last one, best one, best one. <laughs> I have a friend who drank some holy water with his laxative. And it started a religious movement. Amen. <laughs> Brooke was like, don't tell that one. Don't tell that one. <laughs> I'm stretching it, aren't I? If anyone ever tells you 
that to get to heaven, there's something you have to add on to faith in Jesus Christ. It's a joke, y'all. As bad as those, maybe worse. In fact, let's go to some scripture. Mark chapter 1, Jesus gets baptized, and then this is said. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Same word that is used by Paul here. John chapter 3, verse 16. Many of us, even if you're an unchurched person in here, don't read the Bible. You're probably familiar with John 3, 16. Probably uh, most of y'all would agree with me that the essence of the gospel is found in John 3.16. Listen to John 3.16 and then listen to how Jesus really explains John 3.16 in the next two verses. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes, guess what word that is, in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And then in verse 17, listen to this. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. What he's saying in verse 17 is, some of y'all, man, you're Eeyore. You're looking at the the glass half empty. Stop worrying about the judgment and how God's mean and God, why would God judge blah, 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 blah. Doesn't he want everybody to go to heaven? Start realizing that God loved you so much that he sent his son not to condemn the world, but to save the world. That's why he came, was to save us, not condemn us. Verse 18, though, listen clarifies John 3.16. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Nowhere does it say if you don't believe and you don't get baptized, you're going to hell. Nowhere does it say you got to believe and you also got to quit cussing. Now, you should quit cussing, Okay? should get baptized. But none of those are a prerequisite. It's all about God's grace and his love for us. Romans chapter 10, the Romans wrote, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Again, clarity of the gospel. You don't just believe, you believe God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As Scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. The B part of their answer after they say believe in the Lord Jesus says you and your whole household. Kind of confusing. What does that mean? Some preachers pull this out of context and say if the husband gets saved then the whole house is saved. But we've already established clearly throughout the book of Acts that every single individual is going to be accountable for their own response to the gospel. In other words you cannot be saved because your dad's a good Christian, your mom's a good Christian, your spouse is a good Christian, your kids are a good Christian, you at some point in your life have to make a decision and come to grips with the idea that you alone are responsible with your response to the gospel. So it does not mean that because the Philippian jailer got saved, his whole household saved. I believe that this is prophetic on Paul's part. I believe Paul is prophesying about what we're getting ready to see. I also believe that Paul is giving the Philippian jailer his first discipleship lesson, so to speak. And after the Philippian jailer gets saved, he's reminding him of what the next priority should be in his life. Let's continue in verse 32. Y'all with me? Say, I am. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. There they are, explaining the gospel, making sure you have an understanding of this. 
At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. The big point this weekend and where we're going to spend the rest of our time this week. And just allow me to show you one of my charts. That's what we're going to close with today. And, and hopefully we can hermeneutically break this down to where it's so easily applicational for us. And this is why I wanted to preach on this today, and this is why we skipped ahead. We'll be back next week right where we left off. But The Philippian jailer has a radical experience, gets saved, and you can see in the Scripture that there is an immediate shift in his priorities. The first thing is like, okay, I'm saved now. What do I do to glorify God? How am I obedient to God? Boom, he gets baptized. There we are, talking about baptism. Some of y'all must still be struggling with baptism. You must be embarrassed or something because we're talking about it again. But more people than ever this year are getting baptized. It's just crazy. But boom, immediately, I got to be right with God. I got to be right with Jesus. I'm going to get baptized. Immediately. I'm going to serve Paul and Silas. I'm going to bring them in. I'm going to feed them. I'm going to take care of their wounds. I'm going to care for the church. I'm going to care for other people. Immediately, I've got to make sure my family is in on this too, and they hear the gospel, and as a result, they get saved. There is a shift. It appears in the priorities in the Philippian jailer's life. What I want to do is I want to take a look at for a kingdom-minded person, a kingdom man in here for the dads, a kingdom woman, a couple that's doing everything they can to try to live for Jesus, what should our priority list look like from number one, and we're just going to make it to five, and five is going to be a really broad category. We're really just going to establish the first four today. Now, when I show you guys this list, it's not going to be groundbreaking. You're not going to be like, oh, my gosh, I never thought of it. I need to put Jesus number one in my life. I've never realized that, okay? It's not going to shake the foundations of your faith. You could probably right now probably tell me what the priorities I'm going to give you are. But I hope in speaking about this today, some of us get some clarity, number one, and some of us may be convicted and by the end of it, we find joy as a result. So let's get into my, my chart here. You can take a picture at the end. Y'all with me? Say, I am. The priorities for the Christian, number one, of course, is Jesus. Your prime concern and your most important consideration in every single decision you make and everything you do in your life should be, am I glorifying God? Am I pleasing God? Is this something Jesus would have me do. We start out with Jesus on top because we got to understand this. Nothing else works without putting God first. The remaining priorities that we're going to talk about will fold if Jesus is not on the top shelf. And by the way, it's not even a close second. He's alone, top shelf, away from everybody else, and everything you do in your life should center around pleasing God. Now, we're going to get into this because the reality is for every single person in here, 
when we get busy and things happen in life, typically the first thing that suffers is what should be the first priority. It's a lot easier to skip your quiet time. It's a lot easier when you've got a lot going on just to skip church and have nothing to do. Like, just let your relationship with him go by the wayside. So Jesus is number one. Everybody with me? Say, I am. Number two, clearly in Scripture is family. Family. Everybody say family. Family. Uh, spent some time with the Rev Men yesterday at their ministry. It was awesome. If you're a guy in here and you hadn't been to Rev Men, you're missing out, man. Uh, we had, I think it was the best time I've ever got to come because I didn't preach. I said, hey, let's just have the guys send their questions in, and I'll answer any question. Nothing's off limits. And boy, did they ask the questions, y'all. Any man, I'm tell, like I, I was just talking about stuff that I would never say in front of ladies or kids, you know, but we were able to just have an open discussion about so many different things at RevMen. It was really, really good. And, and I told the men I made this statement, and I'm going to make it here today. Your role as a parent, and I'm talking to both parents, okay, is so important because at least 90% of what your kids learn about God needs to come from you, mom and dad. Consumerism, Christianity, culture. A lot of people think it's my job to disciple your kids. You need to read the scripture again. Mom, dad, it is your job to disciple your kids. It's your job to pray over them and be their protector. Hey, we'll pray over them. But guess what? You spend about 3,000 hours a year with your kids. For the person that is committed to Revolution Church, guess how much they come to church? 1.2 to 1.7 times a month on average. And y'all are like, no, we're here every week. No, you're not. Think about it. You go on vacation, you got to go visit family, somebody gets sick, something happens. We get, y'all, about 20 Sundays a year on average. Who do you think is going to be more effective? At discipling your kids, teaching your kids about Jesus, making sure they understand what they believe. This is why family is so important. Underneath family, of course, family is the macro idea, but the micro idea underneath family, there are some things under there that we would break down. And so some of you guys need to know that like underneath family, most important thing underneath there is your marriage. I've told you guys before, you usually giggle when I say this. You need to look at your kids and say, I love you, but I love your mama more. She's my favorite. She's going to be the one not to be gross or anything, but one day maybe wiping me. I don't know. You know what I mean? <laughs> not your friends. Not your kids. Also, you know, in the book of Ephesians, it gives the example of a husband and wife to compare Jesus and the church. So everything you think about your kids, like mold their, their belief system about church and God is so rooted in how you interact with their mom or their dad. You're divorced in here? Okay. Love their mom. 
They're not together anymore. I get that, but love them, respect them. It's family. So important. So important. Family. Family, family. Thirdly, and and I'm going to be honest with you. I struggled with what would be third and what would be fourth, and I flipped back and forth. Go ahead and put the third and fourth one up. Church and work is what I put as third and fourth. And at the beginning of the week, I had work third because the passage that says you're worse than an unbeliever if you don't provide for your family. I was kind of like, so I could see how like it could be work and then church, vice versa. But these two should be priorities no matter where you put them at. You should be a part of a family of believers. And this is where you get your serve in, by the way, and you're focused on other people. This is where you discover your purpose and make a difference, and the church mobilizes together. And we, we reach out into the world and we spread the gospel and we don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. This is where you find freedom from your yesterdays. Because when we confess our sins one to another, that's where we find healing and freedom. The prayer of a righteous person has power in our lives. Sometimes you're going to need people to hold your arms up for you and bear your burdens for you. And this is where the church comes in. So it has to be a priority in your life. Fourthly, and you could say it's third, work. In other words, God has called you to provide, not play video games. Am I in everybody's tater patch this weekend? Man, I sound like my grandpa. He was so old school, and I remember sitting there listening to him sometimes going, golly, Papa, so old school. I'm old school. You know, some preachers teach that when the fall happened in the garden, that's when God cursed man to have to work, but I don't agree with that. I don't believe it's a curse. Because if you read the Old Testament, the Hebrew words that are used for work are the exact same Hebrew words that are used to describe worship. One time we did a sermon one, once about how our work is worship to God. Everything you find in your right hand to do, do it with all your might. Do everything as if you're doing it unto the Lord. And so you're called to work. And then the fifth category, all kinds of stuff underneath there. You can put anything under there. I just listed a few. Uh, your love for your country entertainment, sports, travel. None of these things are necessarily bad. You could put hunting underneath there. You could put video games underneath there. That's totally fine. But everything falls after those first four priorities. What I want to leave us with, and I'm almost done, is I want you to really be honest with yourself and think about this. If you got a piece of paper out, Can you leave that up there for me, just that list, the whole thing? So I may reference it. And you rank the priorities in your life, what would your list look like? Is this it? I know you're not perfect. I get it. But could you really look at this list and say, man, I'm, I'm really trying to pursue Jesus with all my heart, soul, and mind and love him. My family my family's so important to me. Or, or do you look at this list and you go, man, I got some priorities that are jacked up. All I do is work. By the way, when you're with your family and you say you're spending quality time with them, but you're on this stupid thing the whole time, that don't count. It doesn't count. And if you're having a hard time, like, how do I figure out what my priorities are? The litmus test is two things. Look where you spend your time and look where you spend your money. I can tell you exactly what your priorities are in your life by looking at your calendar, 
and looking at your checking account. And if you look at your calendar and you say to yourself, I spend a whole lot more time on travel ball, you got an idol in your life and your priorities are out of whack. I spend a whole lot more money on vacation. Don't tithe, don't give, no generosity whatsoever in your life. Your priorities are totally out of whack. Gave more to a political campaign last year than I gave to organizations that spread the gospel. Something's off, y'all. Something's off. Is everybody with me? Say amen. And if that's you, you probably have no joy in your life. Yeah, I think people in our culture especially, our lives are like a whack-a-mole game. Y'all remember what whack-a-mole was? Anybody in here remember what whack-a-mole was? Put that picture up of whack-a-mole. This is a whack-a-mole game for you youngins that don't know. But you get a hammer, remember? And every mole that pops their head up, you try to pop it on the head. That's the way people are in their lives. They give no thought to biblical priorities and how their life should be really structured. And instead, what we do is we run to every single mole that's popping its head up. Oh, something came up at work. Pop. Oh, something came up over here. Pop. Oh, got to run to practice. Pop. Oh, got to go on vacation. Pop. Oh, got to do this. And our priorities get so out of whack. And as a result, so many couples men that are under the sound of my voice feel completely joyless. Because I'm going to tell you, listen to me when I say this, this will change your life if you'll do the best you can to prioritize the way the Bible says to prioritize. If your priorities are lined up with kingdom priorities that we've laid out, that will dictate and is directly connected to how much joy you are full of. I didn't say happiness. I said joy. And so if you're here this weekend and God's just laying it on you, man, you got something in your life, man, that's more important and your priorities are out of whack, you got to do some praying. You got to do some praying. I think there's some people at Rev Church, just like every church, that in a sense, they're gaining the whole world, but they feel like they're losing their soul. It'd do some of you guys some good to really pray about whether or not you need to go work at McDonald's so that you can spend time with your family instead of working 90 hours a week. And yeah, you're making money. But I'm going to tell you this. Y'all know what a Pinto is? The car a Pinto? Anybody know what a Pinto? My daughter, I told her this last night. She was like, what are you talking about? What's a Pinto? It's a cheap old car, okay? I'm just going to tell you. You're going to find in your life that you're going to be more full of joy riding down the road in a pinto with your family knowing that you all love the Lord than you ever will riding first class by yourself. And so some of you just need to really do some praying. And the Lord's going to lead you to make some drastic changes in your life. Stop hanging out with these people. Start, man, your work is the most important thing. You never even think about Jesus. You, your family is second on the list. And today, hopefully, hopefully today, God's revealing to you. You need to make some changes. Heard this story, and I'll close with this. Heard this story about a, 
a guy who worked his way up from nothing, came from a broken family, had no money, and worked hard his whole life and busted his rear end and made millions and millions of dollars and, and got the amount of money he always wanted. He was one of the most respected men in his field. Uh, so he garnered the respect that he always wanted, married a woman uh, that he thought, man, she's the one, she's what I've always dreamed of marrying, right? Got the car he always wanted, and, and eventually he started to build the mansion, the house that he always wanted. And one day he walked into his house as it was being built, and the builder came to him and talked to him. He was stressed out. Stuff at the office was crazy. He was so busy, burning it at both ends, a million plates spinning, so many different things going on. The builder informs him, we're not going to get your house done on time. Anybody been there since you moved to Crossville? It's not going to happen. We're not going to have it done. And he just loses it. Oh, everything's piled up. I'm fi- I finally want to build the house, and you guys aren't even going to have it done on time. And I heard about how this guy looked over and he looked in the bathroom that was being built and he saw a guy who was laying tile in this house that he was building. And he had music playing and he had a smile on his face and he was clearly full of joy. And he thought to himself in that moment, the guy who is laying tile making eight or nine bucks an hour inside the house of the guy who's building the biggest mansion he's always wanted has more joy. That's where some of you guys are. Seek first the kingdom of God, and he'll give you everything you need. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for today. I thank you for every single person that is here, God. And Lord, I just pray for us that we would be a people that would have our priorities in line. Lord, uh, I thank you for the dads, and I just pray they have a great day. We love you. In Jesus' name, all God's people said. If you're encouraged by today's message, be sure and rate us and subscribe on iTunes.